Welcome to American Indian and Alaska Native Living, a program designed to educate and inspire listeners throughout Indian country. American Indian and Alaska Native Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he is here today to help you learn more about your health. Here is Dr. DeRose. Welcome to American Indian and Alaska Native Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. Today we've got an amazing guest. She's going to be speaking with us about things that can make a difference as far as your life and those that you care about. Her name is Linnea Graff. Dr. Graff, it is great to have you with us. It's great to be here. Linnea, you and I had the privilege of meeting at a venue where I've met actually a number of guests who are making a difference in public health, many of them making a direct impact in Indian country and beyond. You are uh, one of those individuals who, well, actually, we got acquainted at the American Public Health Association meetings. It happened to be in 2022. But uh, for folks that are saying, wow, how did he get Dr. Graff on? They know who you are. But there's probably at least some of my audience who don't know you. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, yeah, absolutely. So uh, personally, I am a mother, right? That's my first job and most important. So I, I love to throw that out there. I have three teenage boys who are 14, uh, 15, and 16. So um, having them are quite enjoyable, uh, but also uh, quite challenging. So that relates a lot to public health and the work that I do because I get to see a lot of real world community health around me. Um, my oldest daughter is 25 and working in engineering. And so there is a lot of rich uh, history for me in being involved in the community. And that is one of the things that kind of led me to the Masters of Public Health program where I work at Liberty University. I started in 2012 when they started uh, the program. And I also met Dr. Lane, who founded this program at the APHA. Wow. So you are actually someone who's now heading up a master's in public health program at a major university. And I mean, I think a lot of folks have heard of Liberty University, but for those who haven't, give us a little bit of background as far as the university itself. So Liberty University uh, started as a very small university, and I'll focus just for the sake of time on the development of the Masters of Public Health program, uh, because if I give you the history of Liberty, we'll probably be here for a little while. But I would encourage your listeners to spend some time checking on the university because it has an amazing, rich history and background. But the Masters of Public Health program was founded uh, by Drs. Lane and a doctor and, and Dr. Mrs. Florence. Uh, who actually, uh, Dr. Lane was a medical director who saw a real need for being uh, more divested and uh, expansive in understanding prevention and the work of prevention in public health. And so uh, took it to Liberty to be able to start this public health program back in 2012. And it was met with a lot of success. And when we rolled it out, it was originally developed with community, uh, or the first concentration was health promotion, uh, epidemiology, and um, nutrition. And so those were the three concentrations. And so from there, uh, the program was accredited uh, with CEAF, so the Council for Education and Public Health uh, in 2016. And it has just grown exponentially since then uh, into the program it is today, which houses, you know, generally on average about 600 students, somewhere between five and 700 students, and uh, covers five different concentrations. We've added, so we have uh, global health, nutrition, um, we now have community health promotion, so this emphasis on community. We have an environmental health program, which is an online-only program, and epidemiology, which is a residential-only program. 
So it's grown quite a bit. We're actually looking at reaccreditation in 2024. So we're currently doing a self-study for our program. And it's been pretty crazy to watch its evolution. Well, I am so excited about what you're doing. And I, I was just amazed when we met uh, several months ago to learn about the enrollment in your master's in public health program. I mean, over 500 students, many of those virtual. And what I think is so exciting about that in Indian country, as I speak with people and tribal communities, reservation-based students, I know one of the real challenges for many uh, indigenous students is just that whole distance factor, being in a strange environment, maybe uh, dealing with some pretty deep discrimination issues on some campuses. But with uh, Liberty, you've got this option where people can, is it is it true they can do the whole program without setting foot on campus or do they need to come out periodically at least? So that is true, uh, depending on the concentration. So I do want to be sure there's a clarification that if you enroll in the Master's of Public Health program and the way our program works, the C for accreditation, uh, there is no requirement to come to campus. There are requirements to be serving in your community. So that doesn't mean that everything can necessarily be done virtually or online. It does mean you don't have to come to Lynchburg. So, and that's true for community health promotion, global health, nutrition, and the application of environmental health, which is only offered online. We don't offer that residentially at all, actually. For epidemiology, that is a residential only program. So you would have to be on campus to receive your master's of public health in that concentration. You know, what I've noticed, uh, Dr. Graff, and I know there's folks that uh, actually, I kind of fall into this category that really like the math and the epidemiology and the statistics, but most of the folks that I ran into and in my public health training, they were happy to do the what they considered the more practical sciences, the hands-on, you know, the environmental health, the community health education. And so folks that are in those disciplines, they actually can be, based on a reservation, doing a lot of practical things, maybe with their tribal council, their tribal health department. Is that how things would likely play out practically? Absolutely. And there's actually such a broad need. I mean, epidemiology is an amazing field, and I certainly don't want to discourage anyone from pursuing it. But I would say jobs in epidemiology, there's normally about 9,000 of those jobs. And while it's growing at a fast rate, like 22%, it is not uh, the fastest growing, nor is it the broadest. If you go into a position like health education or community health promotion, you're talking more like 160, 170,000 jobs. So a much broader job market and is also growing at that 26, 27% rate. So being able to serve in your community, and when you start talking about things like even expanding beyond this concept of health promotion and going into something specific like substance abuse or addiction or looking at, you know, behavioral disorders, um, there are 350,000 jobs if you look at, you know, the the occupational outlook handbook, and that is growing at 22%. And so the reality is, is that these are areas where there is not just, you know, an important socio-ecological framework for a need, but a real need for work professionals who want to step up to those positions because they need to be filled. It's exciting because I meet so many people in Indian country who say they want to give back. They want to do something for their community. And here we're talking about a career that has a lot of uh, opportunity. There's a lot of need for people in the public health field. I have no regrets that I have public health training as well as a medical doctor's degree, and I'm assuming you don't either, Dr. Graff. I do not, and I am not an original public health. I am a public health convert. There are many of us 
there are sort of two pathways into public health. There are some people who know that they want to do public health and were exposed to it early on. But the majority of people, if you ask them what public health is, they have no idea or they think it's, you know, that's getting a vaccination at their local health department. And that's the concept that they might have of public health or a government building somewhere. And those are they are jobs, right? They are things that we do. But public health is so much more expansive than that. And so I actually started with a psychology background and my entire emphasis, I wanted to work in youth advocacy and child abuse prevention. And Mm. my desire was just to understand why people engaged in the behaviors they did and how to change it. And that was it. Everything that drove what I wanted to do for education was really about understanding behavior and why that behavior existed uh, in, in any individual, and then how to actually create behavior change. And so from that, the very last course I took uh, in, my, in my master's program for psychology was a was called prevention psychology. And mm. so it was then I learned like there were actually programs developed to stop people from engaging in behavior in the first place that could be detrimental to themselves and to the world. And so, you know, this whole idea that there was an actual possibility of a job that existed somewhere where you could engage in prevention and that that existed as a field was new to me. And from that class forward, I was like, that's it. I was sold. Public health was for me moving forward. And I switched and got my uh, a second master's degree and a PhD in public health and never looked back. That is an exciting story. And I think it should give... Uh... Some inspiration to folks, because one of the questions I often get, uh, Dr. Graff, from folks is, well, you know, I'm mid-career. I mean, I've been doing uh, engineering or, uh, you know, I'm working in this uh, tribal uh, industry. Maybe I'm uh, in security at a casino or, you know, go through the whole list and someone says, you know, I'm in my 40s. Is public health an option for me? I'm sure you get that question. I mean, how do you answer it? Um, I would say emphatically, yes. Uh, you know, no question about it. The reality is, is that public health is so much broader than people conceptualize. And this concept of really being able to understand how to change wellness on a population level. And that's really what public health is at the end of the day. It's understanding where we are as a population and where we want to go and then determining, you know, how do we systematically get there? Because it's about system level changes. We think about this concept of if we have a a pond of infected fish, that there must be something wrong with the fish. But very seldom it's the fish, right? It's the pond. And so we have to step back and look at that and understand, well, what can we do, you know, individually for each fish? That's great. But they're never going to be a difference um, unless we address the issues that are surrounding the pond that's infecting the fish in the first place. And so this entire concept of what public health is and realizing that it's every activity that promotes the wellness of a population. And that's a lot of activities. It really is. You know, before we get uh, too far into some practical things that we want to touch on in this program, and this is very practical for those who are in tribal leadership, people that are concerned about health equity in their community, we'll speak about that whole topic of health equity. But for folks that are saying, well, wow, you know, public health is something I haven't thought about, or I've got a, a niece or a nephew or a grandchild that should know about this stuff, they want to connect with you or Liberty University. Or how do they do that? Um, well, you can always reach out to me directly. So I will just throw that out there. I am more than happy to connect with individuals. Um, as the program director, one of my roles is 
uh, you know, being able to share with people and determine, is this the right calling for them? Is this the field for them? Because it's not always a clear, easy answer. Mm -hmm. So they, you know, anyone who wants to contact me directly can, can email me. Um, it's, it's pretty simple. It's L G R A S L graph at liberty.edu. Um, you also can find, you know, by simply researching on any page, Liberty University Master of Public Health Program, or there is a bachelor program also. Um, and so the reality is, is that being able to just reach out to me directly, I can get you to where you need to go, even if I don't have the answers. Well, wow. not only is that a gracious invitation, but it's not one of these email addresses that people have to listen to it a hundred times. So they don't need to spell your first name, Linnea. Nope. They just need to remember it starts with an L. Correct. And your last name is Graf, G-R-A-F. Correct. So lgraf at liberty.edu. That's easy. Well, let's come back, Dr. Graf, now to this topic that we're speaking about. You're speaking about what some people would say social determinants of health or environmental determinants, different things in our environment that impact us. And we're going to come to that topic kind of in a roundabout way because Folks are still wondering about your journey. You know, they heard you talk about some of what motivated you to go into public health. But I think a lot of folks are hearing that you seem to have an interest and in maybe some of those in communities who are, by different definition, maybe kind of outliers. They're not the, maybe the folks that are getting the best care. Maybe people are pushing them off uh, to the fringes of society. They have problems. They're dealing with issues. Tell us a little bit more about your motivation, and some of your research going forward in the area of public health? Uh, I would love to do that. It's my favorite topic. So you may have to stop me, but I'll try to keep it a little bit succinct. So in public health, we call it marginalized communities. And what we mean when we say marginalized communities are communities who do not have the same access to resources or capacities or abilities as individuals in mainstream community. And so the reality is when you have a marginalized community or a community that's experiencing inequity, then they want to be able to be sure that they have this opportunity to be connected to those resources. And so that's really important for them to have that access. This is so on point. I know so many folks who are tuning in today are relating to this. I do have to rein you in because the commercials are coming up right now. So we're going to come back with Dr. Graf. We've got a couple of important announcements for you that you want to take note of, but don't go away. We're going to talk more about marginalized communities, how it may impact you, those that you care about, and practical things that you can do about it. Stay tuned. I'm Dr. DeRose. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please reach out to us on the web at A-I-A-N-L dot O-R-G. That stands for American Indian Alaska Native Living. Again, A-I-A-N-L dot org. Or you can call us at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. We are strong, we are resilient, and we will get through this together. But these are stressful times, and it's important to also practice good self-care. It's normal to feel overwhelmed, anxious, or afraid, but there is hope. Reach out to someone, connect with your friends, stay in touch with your community, and know that you are not alone. 
Learn more at wearebroadcasters.com slash hope. Furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. When Jim died, I wondered if I would be able to keep the farm. Then I heard about the USDA's loan program for socially disadvantaged farmers and ranchers. It's for women and minorities who may be having trouble getting credit. Once I was approved, the USDA's Farm Service Agency helped me get the credit I needed. Now I don't have to sell, and I can pass the farm down to my kids the way Jim's dad passed it down to him. I know he'd like that. Contact your local USDA Service Center or visit www.fsa.usda.gov. Social Security is with you through life's journey from birth to retirement. As your life changes year to year, so do your needs. For over 80 years, Social Security has helped to meet your needs and is committed to improving access to the services that make a difference in your life. Today, you can verify your earnings, estimate your future benefits, apply for retirement, manage your benefits, and even change your address all from the comfort of your home. Social Security's online services help put you in control with secure access to your information anytime, anywhere, allowing you to spend more time with family, friends, or simply just enjoying the day. Social Security, securing today and tomorrow. See what you can do online at socialsecurity.gov. Produced at U.S. taxpayer expense. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. With me is Dr. Linnea Graff. She's sharing with us uh, her own journey in public health and how that has impacted literally hundreds, thousands of people at Liberty University and the lives that they've touched. She's the director of the Master's in Public Health program at that university. And uh, we've been speaking about marginalized communities. When we spoke about that, Dr. Graff, I know there's a lot of folks in Indian country that are saying, boy, I mean, you're talking about us. Um, I was actually just speaking with someone who's heading up a big national uh, task force working with the uh, Secretary of Health and uh, looking at inequities in uh, Indian country, how that has impacted Native American communities. But let's keep the discussion broad at first and talk about marginalized communities and how that interface with your own uh, career interests. Well, I think understanding the differences between equality and equity was a real eye-opener for me because, you know, one of the things that I realized is I was learning about vulnerable populations, and that was really where my passion was. And realizing that, that, you know, yes, there are so many different kinds of marginalized communities and the demographics that go into that and understanding it um, is really complex. But the reality is, as we, as we dig into the roots of where a lot of these inequities come from, understanding the difference and how we address them really comes down to this understanding of what does it mean to treat people equally? And so this reality in the beginning of, well, everyone deserves to have the same thing. Everyone deserves to have um, the same access or the same. And so for the longest time, the conversation was about equality. Everybody needs to be equal. But the reality is, is that's, that's not the case. Everyone isn't equal. And so we don't start from the same place. And because we don't start from the same place, we have to take that into consideration when we're talking about and looking at population change. 
because giving everyone the same access does not mean that they will still have the same thing. So if I had mm. three people who were trying to look over a fence and the fence was, uh, you know, a, a, you know, eight foot tall and I gave everybody a three foot box. Well, I've treated them equally, right? I've given them all the same box, but that doesn't mean that they're all going to be able to see over the fence if they're not all six feet tall to begin with. So those individuals who I'm working with who are only three feet tall, regardless if they have a three foot box, still can't see over an eight foot fence. Mm -hmm. And so equity is this conversation about understanding which communities don't have the same resources to begin with and actually creating a system where we're able to address inequities from their root issues. And so for me, that was a huge eye opener when I realized this reality of, I don't want to treat people equally. I want to treat them equitably. And I want to fight for justice, which is this concept of, well, we don't need the fence at all. Let's get rid of the fence completely. How do we mm. do that? And that's talking about addressing barriers that a lot of marginalized communities have to being able to even have a part in the conversation. One of the interesting things to me about public health and just about where public health has gone over the years, I know when I speak with folks in indigenous communities about uh, health research, uh, what might have come under the umbrella of public health, I'll hear some pretty, uh, well, I don't want to use the word scary. Um, I think it's worse than that. It's uh, stories of, of people coming in and doing, quote, research on a tribe and uh, not sharing the data with the tribe, maybe even putting the the tribal community in a negative light. I mean, we've all heard these stories if we've rubbed shoulders with uh, with First Nation peoples and talked with people who have been in those communities for many years. And so the dialogue has switched to this whole um, tribal sovereignty, even of their own data, of this uh, community-based uh, participatory research. I mean, some of these things that we throw out in public health circles may just be things that we've heard about. But what do these terms mean for a layperson tuning into this radio broadcast? How has public health changed even in the time of your career? I can say, I think the easiest way to capture, you know, to capture this concept for anyone who is trying to understand it at a lay level is what I tell my students. Um, we don't do anything to people, groups. We are not their savior, right? We're, we're not there to save anyone. And so being able to go into a population, we don't do things to people. We also don't do things for people. We are not the expert. We have expertise. That's a difference between being the expert, right? We do things with people. And so what that means is that as we come in and we have knowledge or information or understanding that we can share with people in a community, those people are the experts on what their life looks like, their own lived experiences, what's the priority and importance for them. And as we work together, we look at where are we at and where is it that you want to go? and being able to provide you some tools for how to get there. And that conversation of public health is radically different than it existed 20 years ago, where it was a conversation of, well, how do we teach you how to? Well, it's not about teaching you how to. It's about asking you, what do you want to be taught? No, this is great. And it reminds me of what I still do occasionally in my clinical work. So I'm uh, an MD with a specialty in internal medicine. I also have boards in preventive medicine. And one of the discussions that sometimes makes patients uncomfortable is uh, analogous to what you're sharing, Dr. Graff. And that is, I'll, I'll tell the patient, I'll say, you know what? I'm not the expert. You're the expert. I'm the consultant. And they, uh, a lot of them 
this is a difficult concept. It's like, well, why am I seeing you then, you know, if you're not the expert? And I say, you know, I could have the all the medical textbooks, all the medical literature memorized, but you're an individual. And I can say, well, this drug is supposed to do this or this lifestyle change is supposed to do that. But if it doesn't work for you, um, it's not helping you. So, again, it's the same idea of this partnership. And, again, I think it's come sooner in public health than it has in clinical medicine. But I think we're all on the same path that we need to realize that we can come alongside each other. We can collaborate. We can share what expertise we may have. But at the end of the day, it's the individual, it's the community that is going to have to make those decisions. Uh, Does that seem like we're talking the same language? Absolutely. I don't think I could put it any better myself. And there is a, there's a spectrum there. When you talk about health services, you know, we talk about medical treatment and the role that plays in, in working with individuals. And there is a place for treatment. And in public health, we focus on things that are a little more, we consider them upstream, right? So so medical and uh, medical intervention, clinical interventions, treatment, that's a little more downstream. And so really what that just means is that we're working with each individual um, to be able to determine where is the best pathway for them. In public health, we're working a little more upstream, trying to understand at a population level what makes the most sense and being able to look at this a little more broadly, but the concept's exactly the same. Well, let's bring this back now to practical applications. So we've already talked to folks who may be at a, at a crossroads. They're trying to say, well, what can I do in a career line? How could I help my community? I want to give back. We've told them, you know, public health, make sure that's on your radar screen. And uh, Dr. Graff is willing to communicate with you. By the way, if you're just jumping on, Dr. Linnea Graff was kind enough to give out her email address for anyone to reach out to her. Uh, Linnea, would you give that uh, email address out one more time in case some folks missed it? Yes, absolutely. So if you would like to learn more about public health in general or the Masters of Public Health program here at Liberty, you can contact me at L. That's my first name, Linnea, L. Graf, G-R-A-F as in Frank. So it's L. Graf at liberty.edu. Okay, very good. So let's go to the other population now that we want to speak to, because I think many of the folks, if they're connecting the dots, they heard what you shared earlier, 500 to 700 master's in public health students at any given time at Liberty University And uh, having graduated with a degree in public health myself, I know, and my emphasis was in health promotion and health education, I know I had to be doing a lot out in the community. That was part of the program. It wasn't just sitting at a desk. And I'm sure that that's true for your students. Are there opportunities, let's say for a tribal health director or maybe some tribal council person is listening, they say, boy, we could use someone, you know, working with our tribal health team to look at some of these issues. Do you have students that are looking for projects? I mean, can people reach out to you about that? Yes. And I cannot emphasize how wonderful it would be to connect more with all of the communities that we want to be able to work in and with because there could be people in your community um, that are looking for those opportunities because we do have an online program. So we have students all over the place. And so the reality is is that in order to graduate with a master's of public health with that is SEEP accredited, which is very important in today's world, uh, you have to do what's called a practicum. And that practicum requires 120 plus hours in the field demonstrating an impact with a community. And so that requires deliverables and and creating actual information or work that supports or provides uh, 
work towards an agency mission that meets the foundational competencies of public health. So that could be anything from developing data information or infographics or deliverables or curriculum to actually doing, you know, survey methodology or working as any type of not an internship, right? We don't want people who are just shadowing to figure out what your work looks like, but actually helping you create something or work on a project that would have some type of deliverable impact on that community. Oh, that's exciting. I think a lot of folks resonate more with that than just saying, well, someone's going to tag along with me, but this is really someone who's going to get in the trenches and try to make a difference with something that may be a tribal council, tribal health department, or someone who's listening today if they're not involved in Indian country, but they say, hey, I'm in the public health field. I'm not working with indigenous people exclusively, but could I reach out to Dr. Graff? And I'm hearing you say yes. Am I putting words in your mouth? No, absolutely. I think that the most important thing in public health, and I tell students this and people that I mentor all the time, is your network. And your network is the people who you connect with and build relationships with. People are a resource, and they are one of the best resources that we possibly have. We are all created differently, and that's important to be able to build that network. Tremendous. L. Graff at liberty.edu. That's how you get a hold of Dr. Graff. If you want to get more insights from her, stay tuned. We do have to step away. She's staying by. So am I. We'll be back with more right after these important words. I'm Dr. DeRose. American Indian and Alaska Native Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please contact us on the web at AIANL.org or call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. A message from the National Police Association. It used to be that any able-bodied person would offer to assist a police officer in danger. Now, passers-by are more likely to take a video. There's a better use for your phone when an officer's in trouble. Call 911. Tell the operator where you are and what you see. Then, start your video to provide evidence later. To learn more about how you can assist law enforcement, visit nationalpolice.org. That's nationalpolice.org. Unlike other health concerns, mental illness is not always easy to see. Depression won't show up on an eye chart, and you can't measure it on your bathroom scale. Sorting out a mental health concern is not something to attempt on your own. You won't find a bipolar disorder by looking at a thermometer. Like many other health conditions, help for mental illness takes professional diagnosis and treatment. Anxiety won't just go away under a stick-on bandage. So the sooner you seek treatment, the better. If you or a loved one has a mental health concern, don't go it alone. Find out what to do. For 24-hour free and confidential information and treatment referral, call 1-800-662-HELP. Learn more at samhsa.gov support. That's samhsa.gov support. Using meth taught me everything about freedom, only not like you think. It taught me how easy it is to lose your freedom. If you think meth is taking control of you, ask for help. You have the power to be truly free. I know. I'm Jan, and I'm free from meth. If you or someone you know is struggling with meth, call 1-800-662-HELP for 24-hour free and confidential treatment referral. Learn more at samhsa.gov meth. 
You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to our second half of today's edition of American Indian and Alaska Native Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. My guest, Dr. Linnea Graff. She's been speaking to us from Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia. She's been sharing, I would say, some very practical things that can make a difference for communities, talking about how there's opportunities for public health training for individuals, how those of you that are working in your communities, interested in seeing change happen, can reach out to people like Dr. Graff, even though she may be across the country or uh, you might be listening from, uh, well, you might be one of my friends in Nome, Alaska. I've actually been up there with you at uh, one of our stations there in Nome, and you're saying, hey, um, that's a long way from Virginia, but it's amazing in this day and age you can find some partnerships with, uh, with folks that are training at Liberty University. Dr. Graff, I just have to bring up a, you know, a topic because some folks – no Liberty. Uh, I'm going to tell you just kind of an interesting connection. I was lecturing in um, Raleigh-Durham some years ago, and uh, one of the folks that was hosting my time there doing some community health education was a physician who was also a lawyer. And uh, we were speaking about law training because of a person I knew at the time who was looking into a law career. And he was just, he wasn't a Liberty graduate, but he was waxing eloquent about the law program at Liberty. So you guys have quite a reputation, but you also have a reputation as a faith-based institution. And I know sometimes, you know, folks uh, just say, oh, that's great. Other people, that kind of creates some barriers. So the big question, you know, as we're talking about possible collaborations, possible students coming to Liberty, is this whole faith and spirituality connection with public health. Help us to kind of see that maybe through the eyes of someone who may embrace a faith-based worldview, or maybe someone who says, well, this is kind of distancing. I don't know that I want to reach out. You know, be talking liberty. I know about liberty. They're a Christian school, aren't they? Why would I reach out to them? Help us see the big picture. Absolutely. So I think that, you know, understanding faith and spirituality as it relates to health is absolutely critical. And so there are a couple of different things I will throw out there, I guess, related to this. One, you know, our students and our faculty and our staff do tend to have a Christian walk. That's we are a Christian university. Um, but we tend to come at the work that we do from a very expansive, inclusive perspective. And realizing that 80% of the population focuses uh, on practicing some type of religion or spirituality. And that's not the same for everyone. And the reality is, is that, you know, in public health, you meet everyone where they are and in the journey and the walk that they're on and honor that and be respectful of it. So public health is as a field itself. And we expect that from our students. It's something that we talk to students about. It's something that we focus on. And, you know, honoring each person's journey and what that looks like uh, is very, very important in general, as far as that goes. And I think that realizing that being a Christian is certainly something that's a core part for faculty and a core part of, of our journey. And you're going to not hear us be shy about our faith when we talk about it to people, but it's not something, you know, that we bring into a field and say, well, we're only here to serve you if you're a fellow Christian. Great. Well, I appreciate that balance between saying, you know, faith is something that drives your interest in, in ministering to people and helping, and yet at the same time you respect people where they're at on that journey. So I, th I think folks should find that reassuring 
I find it reassuring because I know even within Christianity, there's all kinds of uh, perspectives and bottom line is communities need help. We need help as individuals. And let's segue to that because right now, let's make it practical. Dr. Graff, uh, many of my listeners, if they're regular listeners, they know that we've been doing a program. It's been a virtual program that we call Fast 8. It's a uh, it's a weight loss program we've had. Uh, I want to say like 1,300 people who've you know jumped on and have joined us for the program uh, to this point as we're recording this show. And uh, there's a big need. A lot of people are saying, I need help. And whether a person listening today feels like their needs in that preventive medicine, lifestyle medicine arena relate to their weight, uh, I can't tell you how many people I meet as a physician that tell me things like, oh, yeah, I know I should be doing better, uh, whether it's for their diabetes or their high blood pressure. You've done all kinds of research into behavior change. I know you've especially worked you know, from a population level, but help us get some encouragement that if we've failed in the past, if it seems like we're just in a, a losing battle, whether it's with our blood sugar levels or our blood pressure, our weight, whatever it might be, our heart disease, that there's hope for us. And research actually gives us some encouragement. I think that that is a wonderful way of putting it is that, you know, this idea of we are a work in progress, right? Mm. We are always going to be progressing and it is perfectly okay to fail forward. And um, some people don't love those words, failing forward. They hate the word failure, but the reality is, is failure is just simply not getting it right this time or not quite being perfect. And no one's expecting anyone to ever be perfect in their work. And so one of the things that we look at um, when we're looking at individuals or populations is something we call domains of health. And domains of health is this reality that we are complex human beings and we're made up of more than one part of ourselves, right? So we have physical wellness, emotional wellness, mental wellness, spiritual wellness, financial wellness, and all of these make up the different stressors and decisions and behaviors and values that we come from. And so I like to conceptualize it as a wheel, right? If we sat down and we sat on a scale of one to five, how do I feel um, one being the least uh, possible well and the least possible in control of my life for that area, say in financial wellness, mm. right? Or five being, you know what? I feel confident about my budget. I feel confident that I plan for the future. Um, it's not about being rich, but it's about I'm good and comfortable with where I am. That would be a five, right? And so everyone's somewhere on that scale, one to five. And if we color that pie in for each domain of wellness, no one's going to have a perfect wheel right? They're going to be all over the place. And so the reality is that's kind of helps, helps us know where some of our struggles can be. And when we think of something like physical wellness, right, trying to be the best physical version of ourselves, there are a lot of things tied to that. A lot of, you know, emotions or thoughts or behaviors or social aspects of wellness that impact that physical wellness. And so realizing that that is um, there are different things that impact our behavior is a good window into realizing we have opportunities or options to create small goals that'll help us drive us forward. And it's not always about, you know, finding a magic number on a scale or reaching this broad, huge place that we're trying to get eventually, but just what can I do today to be a better version of myself? I love this picture. And uh, again, for a lot of people, it's really counterintuitive. So one of the things that we're doing in this program, we're introducing people to what we call eight different fasting strategies. And a lot of people hear that and they say, oh my, I mean, 
eight fasting strategies over eight weeks. By the end of eight weeks, you know, I'm going to be just living on air, right? Uh, you're going to take everything away. Well, we're doing some, I think, some creative things with folks, and we're uh, sometimes the fasting strategy is just they're going to fast from certain foods at the beginning of their meal. So one of the things we introduce is you have to have a serving of a leaf, stem, and flower vegetable at the beginning of one meal a day each day of the week. And uh, we say we're trying to keep the barriers really low. We want to build a, you know, a culture of success for you. So if it's really hard to eat vegetables, maybe all you're going to do is have a bite of celery before your meal. And, uh, and folks are saying, well, how is that going to help me lose weight? But it's this dynamic, like you're sharing, of these small, measurable goals. And people look at them and they say, well, how is this going to make a difference? We actually had a woman that did this, someone that I had worked with a while ago. And uh, she got on and shared how she's lost 95 pounds, you know, doing this, making these small steps. And when she feels she's accomplished one thing, then adding something else. Why is this so powerful when it seems like it's really doing basically nothing? Well, I think the trick is to kind of think about the reality that we are not just where we are right now. We're everything mm. that led us up to that moment, right? And so the habits that we've created, the behaviors that we've engaged in, the values that we have reinforced for ourselves, the things that we've been rewarded for, um, the relationships that we're in, we're an accumulation of all of those things. So if we're in a place right now that we don't want to be, if we're, if we're sitting at a table or we're sitting in a place physically or mentally and we say, I I'm not happy with where I am, the reality is you didn't wake up in that space. You grew and evolved into that space through lots of little decisions along the way. And so the way out of that space is not going to be one decision. It's going to be a hundred little behaviors and a hundred little choices and being in an environment that supports that and, and ensuring that you've, you know, provided for yourself and being able to be sure that you have empowering, supportive voices along the way and that you can address the barriers that are going to make it challenging for you to create that change. This is great. You've had a lot of experience, uh, both individually and working with students. Tell us some success stories that will inspire us. Uh, I was thinking about a way to be able to give this practically. And one of the things that we do with students is called 28 Days to Change. And so it is an actual assignment that we have in our social behavioral theory class. And so in order to understand population change, it's easiest to understand change for yourself first and how hard it is to create change. And so we have uh, students do a, a circle of wellness for themselves, identifying where they are on a scale of one to five for each one of these domains. And from that, they have to pick one thing that they would like to do differently. We ask them not to pick something they already have a five on because we don't want them to take the easy way out. But we don't necessarily want them to pick something that they have a one or a two on, by mm. them, right? So we want to start building this idea of perceived efficacy, this idea of I am capable of change, period, about anything, right? And so they pick one thing that they want to focus on, and then they have to identify from that goal a specific SMART objective. And so to create a SMART objective, we say, you need to say something specific. So not, I want to lose 90 pounds, but I want to eat five servings of fruits and vegetables every day, right? So by, you know, the end of 28 days, I will have five servings of fruits and vegetables on my plate to replace a serving of, you know, carbs uh, as measured by food law, right? So it's specific, it's measurable, it's attainable, right? So we can't say I'm going to, you know, to say I'm going to lose 90 pounds, that that seems impossible when you wake up and you say, I have a choice right now between having 
um, this really delicious lemon poppy muffin or or something that looks, you know, really yummy, but is probably 700 calories um, or eating something that's, you know, supposed to be healthy for me that I may have never even tasted before. Right. And so this concept of what's the benefit for me long term versus what can I have right now is really hard when we're looking at big goals. Mm -hmm. But if we look at a little goal, then it's easy to make that little bit of a step towards the place that we're going. And so we have students go through these 28 days identifying actions and strategies. And so every single term, I get students who realize how hard it is to change a behavior. Like, I want to drink more water. And, mm. and what does that look like? And, and create some strategies for that. Um, to students who want to practice a better spiritual wellness for themselves or mm. dig deeper into their faith. Uh, students who want to create better social relationships and be able to figure out how to control and work with their emotions. So every single term, I get students who come back and say, I had no idea 28 days could actually change my life. And it's just these little these little things that help them be able to do it. Well, that really puts it in perspective. And I know you've got a lot more practical insights. We really want to focus on those practical things in our final segment. We've got to step away just briefly. Some have just jumped on. We're speaking with Dr. Linnea Graff. She's an associate professor at Liberty University. She's the director of the Master's in Public Health program there. And Linnea, before we step away just uh, a final time, give us one more time your email address because you've been so gracious to tell folks you're willing to, to dialogue with them. So it's lgraff at liberty.edu. So L is in my first name, G-R-A-F as in Frank at liberty.edu. Okay, Dr. Graff is staying by. We've got one final segment coming up. We encourage you to stay tuned as well. More practical strategies that can help you and help your community. I'm Dr. DeRose. We'll be right back. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. If a natural disaster comes knocking, how prepared is your family? You can't just close the door on earthquakes, floods, or hurricanes and hope they go away. That's why it's important to make a plan now. Ready.gov slash plan has the tools and tips you need to prepare your family for an emergency. So if disaster shows up at your doorstep, you'll be ready. Visit ready.gov slash plan and make a plan today. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. I'm just texting him back. I'm just posting a story. I'm just changing the song. I'm just... No. When it comes to distracted driving, just don't. Sending a text takes your eyes off the road for just five seconds, but in that time, your car can travel the length of an entire football field. Any distracted driving just isn't worth it. Visit StopTextsStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. What is a number story? My number story started with fear and a lack of support, and it has led me to be there for others. A number story begins in our childhood with ACEs, Adverse Childhood Experiences. My number story begins with the separation from my father and the emotional abandonment from my mother and leads to me being a role model to not only myself, but those around me by becoming the person that wasn't there for me. ACEs are so common, two-thirds of us have one. My number story begins with drug abuse and homelessness and leads to realizing that I can live life by my own standards. 
A study found the more ACEs, the more likely we may experience a host of serious health effects, physical and mental, but that doesn't need to be the case. Your ACE number is simply an entry point to your own story. Where it leads is up to you. My number story begins with years of emotional abuse and leads to peace, clarity, and security in my self-worth. Take control of where your number story leads at numberstory.org. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian and Alaskan Native Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. You are back with Dr. David DeRose and Dr. Linnea Graff for our final segment of today's edition of American Indian and Alaska Native Living. We promised you as we stepped away to the break some more powerful things that can make a difference as far as your own journey, maybe your tribe's journey, maybe your community's journey, maybe your family's journey to better health. Dr. Graff, you've done a lot of work. Uh, You've taught classes on behavior change. What are some other things that are, well, maybe overlooked that could make a big difference for folks tuning in today? I think one of the things, if you're looking to create a behavior change in your life, one of the things that you need to do is to take some time to determine what are some of the root causes of that behavior. Mm. The reality is we often want something to be different, but we don't take time to do sufficient reflection on what's really driving that behavior in ourselves. And so that's a that's a critical part is being um, really honest with yourself. You know, so the reality is, is, you know, I can tell you from my own life, um, you know, emotional eating, that's like a real, it's a real issue for me. Mm. Um, I am definitely a stress eater. I, you know, if I have a really hard day or I've had, you know, something, you know, I've experienced some kind of trauma, you know, my first go-to is ice cream. And, you know, the reality is, and that comes from, you know, a background or a childhood where that's how we fix things, right? You know, you had a bad day, you know, you, you know, dad sat you down and he gave you some ice cream and, and that just made it all better. We didn't talk about it. Right. And so this behavior, being able to kind of really understand where that behavior came from and why that was my first gut instinct or desire or need is really kind of figuring out, well, where is that need coming from? It's not just an obsession or an inability to control my desire to eat ice cream. There's a need not being fulfilled in my life and realizing that I have to acknowledge that that is a real need and it needs to be validated. We're built up of a hierarchy of needs. And so the reality is, is we're going to meet our basic needs first. And that comes from, I need food. I need to feel safe. I need to have a place where I belong. Um, And those are real things. And being the best version of ourselves is something that comes after those needs. And so Mm. often if it's something that we're trying to create a change for, we really need to sit down and come up with a very actionable item. And so that, that idea is, it's not just theoretical. It's not just um, something that I might want to have one day, but what's something truly actionable that I can measure? So for me in emotional eating, it was when anytime I really wanted ice cream, I had to call somebody that I was accountable to. So I had a friend mm. and was like, you know what? I really want to go have ice cream and this is why. And it was a, it was an action item that I impressed upon myself because I understood that my desire for that was unhealthy, was, was coming from mm. a dysfunctional place but that I still wanted the ice cream, right? I really uh-huh. wanted ice cream. And the reality is, is it's okay to have ice cream. Ice cream's not a bad guy, right? Ice cream is great. It's wonderful. It's delicious. But it needs to be eaten in a way um, that is leading to my best self, not my worst self. And so that that phone call would give me the moment to process and ask myself, do I really want ice cream or is there a different need here 
that I need to address. And so having, you know, an actionable item, having accountability and really being honest with yourself about what's driving some of your behaviors, that's probably the hardest part, I think, is taking the time to do that self-reflection because real change won't happen without it. Well, there's so much that we could unpack in just that illustration, but let me tell you at least one place my mind is going. So you've mentioned this strategy of maybe having a a support person, maybe an accountability partner, whatever terminology we want to use. And the person listening today who may be in that role of an accountability partner, they're saying, well, what was their job? I mean, when you call saying, I really want some ice cream, what was the understanding you had? Were they supposed to discourage you? Were they supposed to say, well, just ask you questions? Well, do you really feel you need this? Did you give them some instruction as well? Yeah. So I think that giving the other person instruction is really important. And so we use this tactic, the fancy word for it is motivational interviewing, right? Mm. And so it is about asking questions. You never want to tell somebody, you know, someone's not the boss of you, right? So they're not going to tell you, you can or cannot have ice cream, but they can ask you what is motivating, you know, what's motivating you to have ice cream. And so the first thing is just to ask, well, why, why do you want ice cream? And so the reality is if I said, well, I had a terrible day and Someone was mean to me and I just want to go home and have ice cream. And I said that I was going to call you and tell you. So now I am. Right. Then it's still at the end of the day, my choice to decide whether or not I'm going to do that. But then in return, my accountability partner can say, okay, well, is that, you know, you can definitely have ice cream. That's, that's totally your choice. And, but is that going to fulfill um, what you really want right now? And if mm. the answer that's yes, then maybe we go have ice cream. Uh, maybe we have it together. But, you know, if it's not, and often it wasn't, then I have the opportunity to stop and think about what I'm doing and why. So it's really about asking questions more than it is about telling someone what they can do. No, that's great. And and we do this with individuals, too. One of the things we're talking about overeating is we'll say, don't serve food from the table. You know, have it on a counter or someplace where you have to get up. So you're being mindful. Do I really need more rather than just putting a little bit more on my plate? So it's that same kind of dynamic where we're getting people to try to reflect, right? Right. Now, let me ask you another question. It goes along with this. And I'll just kind of tell you one of the things that we're dealing with. So a lot of folks have, and you know, we all use different terminology when we speak about addictions, but people have addictive relationships with all kinds of things. And certain foods, for some people, level of addiction. Maybe it is ice cream or chocolate or chips. For other people, eh, we wouldn't put it in the category of addiction. They may have some problems with it, but here's the challenge. So on one level, we'll often tell people to be mindful, to be reflective, maybe have an accountability partner. Other people have to say, I need to make a clean break with this. And you know, we say, well, that's really straightforward if we're dealing with alcoholism or nicotine addiction. But we found in our work with folks, a lot of times that does relate to some of these things that aren't really maybe technically addictive in themselves in the way we think of addiction, but some people still need to make a clean break with things. Why I bring that up is because what I hear you saying is you found something in your experience that worked for you, and is it really always this individualizable? I mean, do different people have to use different strategies when it comes to getting to the the same goals? Well, I think there are some things that are generally that we believe to be universal, like from a theory. You know, again, I work in population health. Obviously, I try to spend a lot of time applying behavior change to entire populations. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that we look at, even in a population, is what's the root cause, right? Mm -hmm. We may have the data that says here we've got 28% of the population experiencing heart disease. 
and then we, you know, we do this called the five whys. We drive down like a toddler. Why? Why? Why is there heart disease? What's, what are the factors driving that heart disease? And then why does this behavior, what's this motivated by? And so very much like a toddler, you just have to keep digging at that why. And that can kind of help you uncover some of what's creating um, that need. Because the reality is we are beings as, as humans, we need we need things and we desire and want things, but it's coming from a place of motivation. And so knowing what's motivating you, um, I think is a definitely a population application, whether it's, you know, looking at an entire population, there's a reason there's 350,000 jobs in substance abuse and addiction, right? Because addiction is um, the desire to have something in a dysfunctional way. That, mm. That's the reality, you know, something that disrupts your life. And you can be addicted to television. You can be addicted to exercise, right? We can be addicted to good things, healthy things. And that's one of the things that we talk about as a strategy for population level change is we're not going to try to create a scenario where someone doesn't have an option. We just want them to have healthy options, mm -hmm. right? So we're not going to take something away. We're going to replace it um, with a with a different or more desired behavior. And so the reality is we still have to meet that need. The question is, what are we going to meet it with? love the emphasis on root causes. And I know, you know, from working with individuals, this is often a really difficult one. You know, you're trying to drill down, like you said, with these why questions. One of the other exercises we've found that was often quite effective is asking people when they've identified a bad habit or a behavior that's deleterious or an addiction, we would ask them the question, well, what good was it doing for you? And it's it's always funny when you ask that question because it's, this is terrible, you know. It's, you know, the, or the smoking's caused lung cancer, or the the drinking has you know caused me to have cirrhosis. And we say, no, what good is it doing for you? I mean, you wouldn't have continued to do it unless there was some good. And when they start to recognize, well, you know, when I'm sad, you know, it helped me. Or sometimes that seemed to draw out that discussion. Have you found something similar like that? Yes, I love that. And that's part of that motivational interviewing technique that I was talking about, this idea of asking questions that get somebody to, to kind of identify what is it that's driving their behavior. And so questions like a lot of the, the different types of questions could be something like not just what is it doing for you, right? But are you where you want to be now? And if not, what does it look like? What does mm -hmm. what you want to be look like? Okay, now let's look at our actions. Are our actions creating the environment or the behavior or the consequence that we want when we said this is where we want to be. And sometimes the answer that's yes, and sometimes it's no, right? And if the answer is no, you've got to do something different. Well, Dr. Graff, it has been great to have you on the show. I know you pulled yourself away from a lot of other responsibilities. We really appreciate it. Our time is just about gone, but one more time, if some didn't realize that you are available, you'll talk to people about public health, you can talk about opportunities where some of your students might help with some uh, goals in an individual's community. Tell us again how we can uh, track you down. So you can reach me at lgraff at liberty.edu. Easy enough. L for Linnea, graph, G-R-A-F, at liberty.edu. Thank you so much, Dr. Graff. It has been a pleasure. And to each one of you who've tuned in today, thank you for taking time to learn more about your health needs, the needs of your community, and how you can make a difference. For all of us at American Indian and Alaska Native Living, I'm Dr. David DeRose wishing you the very best of health. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.